Dear Elizabeth, are we Dear Elizabeth, about two miles out in the rocky Dear Elizabeth, Dear Elizabeth, Dear Elizabeth. Friday evening, July 26th, 1963. Dear Elizabeth, are we lucky? We are here in the Rocky Mountains, about two miles out of Estes Park Village and near the park boundary. Midsummer 1963 in the Rocky Mountains. The weather was hot and the crowds unrelenting. But that didn't stop Lucy and Annette Brown. 74- and 79-year-old sisters and world-renowned scientists. Pretty much nothing stopped Annette and Lucy once they set their minds to it. In that hot summer in 1963, as temperatures hovered close to 100 degrees, they were three days into what would be their last research trip from Cincinnati, Ohio, to the Rocky Mountains. They sent letters almost every day about their journey back home to Elizabeth Brockshiger their fellow scientist and dear friend who often house-sat at the never-married sister's suburban home. Welcome to Dear Elizabeth, a serial podcast about the barrier-shattering scientists and sisters, Annette and Lucy Brown, as told to one of the many scientists they inspired through their teaching and, most of all, through their lives dedicated to pursuing research and conservation. I'm Elissa Yancey, a journalist and nature nerd who's been fascinated by Annette and Lucy for years. I explained why in our first episode, so you can go back and listen if you want to know more. But suffice it to say, Lucy and Annette Brown were, and still are, seriously big deals in the worlds of botany and entomology. But despite their long lists of firsts, they remained rarely mentioned in their hometown, which is also mine, Cincinnati. The Adventurous Sisters first traveled west in 1924, when Annette was 40 and Lucy was 35. They were dependent on trains and horse-drawn carts to get from one stop to the next, and donkeys to get them to the base of the Grand Canyon. By 1963, Lucy had been driving for more than 30 years, expanding their possibilities and freedom to explore. Her sister Annette never learned to drive. But in the Rockies, they encountered delays that hint at the changing times, when family road trips along expanding highway systems were poised to change the nation's landscape forever. Just listen as Lucy spills the tea of the time. Estes Park is 10 times worse than Gatlinburg. We had expected to spend tonight at Loveland, but got there about 2 p.m. mountain time, so came ahead. We were dismayed when we saw Estes Park, then stopped at the Chamber of Commerce information. She tried to locate a place for us, sent out on Route 262 to a place she phoned to, but we did not like it or one adjacent, so drove on up the road, more and more away from the crowded part and saw this. A good restaurant is right next. Anyway we look out, we see magnificent mountains, which we've been watching ever since we got here. Changing light, clouds, rain, sun, and just as I started this, a grand rainbow. 
Hope the picture, number one of this trip, turns out all right. Annette and Lucy were born before the 20th century began, in days when horse-drawn carriages were only slowly being replaced by electric streetcars in their family's neighborhood of Walnut Hills. Their first exposure to nature came from their parents, both of whom were educators who loved exploring the nearby woods with their daughters. Their mother, Emma Brown, who loved teaching to raise Annette and Lucy, loved botany. As young girls, they were encouraged to know plants' proper scientific names as well as their more common ones. Emma passed along her meticulous ways and her beautifully flowing cursive writing style to her daughters. With a flair and tone that makes it hard to imagine Lucy as 75 on the 1963 trip, the younger brown sister offers a glimpse into her lifelong singular focus on documenting the natural world, as well as her judicious use of air conditioning. It has been a hot trip. Tuesday night, we kept the air conditioner on. Wednesday, hot, and did not get as far as Chillicothe, but had the 1,000-mile service on car. We stopped at 3 p.m. Thursday, started driving at 6.40, while still not hot, and, because of clouds in early p.m., not so hot for a while. Lunch in a breezy roadside park. Surprisingly, we got all the way to Norton, Kansas, 388 miles, and stopped at the same motel as in 1959, where we could walk outside after a good dinner across the road. Again, we started early and had cool breezes for a couple of hours, then hotter and hotter. This has been one of the hottest spells on record for Denver and all the mountain front. At Greeley, Colorado, we stopped for gas, and while there, a man walked up and asked, Are you from Cincinnati AAA? He was the Greeley AAA representative, and he advised us to go right on to Estes Park, where it would be cooler, said we'd find a place. In the 21st century, it's hard to imagine a chance encounter with a dutiful AAA agent ready to dispense helpful motel guidance. This guy had to have been on the lookout for the elderly sisters from Cincinnati. And what are the odds he would run into them at a gas station? Probably pretty good, I learned. Legislation to build the American Interstate Highway System was passed in 1956, just seven years before the sisters' trip and the boom in family car vacations was just beginning to reshape the country's landscape. By the end of 1963, just 16,000 of a proposed 41,000 miles of highway had been constructed. Lucy and Annette's trip marked a time of transportation transition. From the days when unspoiled natural settings were explored mostly by scientists and researchers, to the building out of national parks and recreation areas designed for mass consumption. But for Lucy and Annette, the discovery of the Trail Ridge Motel was a welcome escape from the crowds of Estes Park. Lucy describes that it even changed their fluid itinerary. This place is so nice that we will come back here from Lazydale. 
You can write us here if you wish to. We have made a reservation for August 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and then on Thursday, August 8th, we'll start westward. This place is so located that we can get to most places without going into Estes Park again, except to go from here to Eldora. We forgot to tell you where Eldora is, and it is not on the Colorado map. It is west-southwest of Boulder and four miles off the highway through Nederland. mention of Lazydale and Eldora led me to discover a whole history of Colorado mining towns, places that worked hard to transform into tourist destinations after the gold rush left them struggling for survival. Places that struggled as the new interstate system passed them by and residents banded together to fight losing control of their destinies. Today, while Lazydale cabins still exist, the town of Eldora does not. In the end, Eldora landowners went to extreme measures to keep the encampment on the edge of the Rocky Mountain National Park out of the hands of 20th century developers. They became the first Colorado municipality to ever de-incorporate. About 10 years after the sisters' last trip west, Eldora was officially declared abandoned. It was zoned as forestry in 1974. Today, the land where Lazydale cabins can still be rented is part of Roosevelt National Forest and adjacent to the untouchable Indian Peaks Wilderness area along the Continental Divide. For Lucy and Annette in 1963, though, the focus was on the wonders easily accessible from the Trail Ridge Motel, a comfortable room that allowed them to avoid crowds of tourists and access to a good restaurant checked two of three important boxes for the scientists looking for new species and variants on the ones they had well documented in the East. Lucy detailed the third important box in the next section of her letter to Elizabeth. Looks like we would see flowers. Walked around the motel after dinner until it rained and saw lots of beautiful things. A yellow menzilia that opens in the evening, white pale pink onothenra, Beautiful blue penstemon, red pink loco weed, yellow legume, mertensia, eriogonum enclosed, several species of composites, etc., all on a dry, sunny slope with gramma grass enclosed. Annette says, Tell Elizabeth she is okay. Just getting out the things we need tonight, etc. Lucy and Annette. By this point in her life, Lucy was likely to mention plants by both their scientific and more common names. She and Annette continued tracking and monitoring species of plants and the moths that they hosted, and in their way, marked distinctions between species in different geographies as well as shifts in populations over time. Their insatiable desires to explore and discover left indelible marks on botany and entomology. Through Lucy's masterful scientific arguments about the need for conservation, and Annette's identification of more than 300 species of microscopic moths. Their evening walkabout near the base of the Rocky Mountains is a brief and vibrant example of their way of seeing the world. It yielded encounters with yellow mentzelia, better known as blazing stars, stick leaves, or moonflowers because of their nocturnal blooms. That pale pink onothera, that was an evening primrose or pink lady, 
another night-opening bud. Oh, how I wish I could have seen that beautiful blue nectar-rich penstemon, better known as beard tongue, and call it a pioneer plant because it's often among the first species to take root in landscapes damaged by fires and road construction. It turns out that Lucy and Annette found their stop at the Trail Ridge Motel so comfortable that they ditched their plans for Eldora altogether. Instead, they lingered and explored, with a winding Trail Ridge road giving them easy access, via car in their hiking boots, to a wide range of trails and altitudes. Thursday evening, August 1st, 1963. Dear Elizabeth, We started our day by watching two deer at the edge of the flowery meadow across the highway as we were eating our breakfast in the very good restaurant next to the motel. After breakfast, we drove not over two miles up the highway and spent the morning amongst the yellow or ponderosa pine trees, taking some pictures and watching the birds. More birds here than we have ever seen before. A mountain bluebird fed its three or four young. A pair of Williamson sapsuckers, the male mostly black with white patches, the female banded on the back something like the red-bellied woodpecker. Lots of other birds. So many birds. At first I wondered why Annette meticulously detailed them in this letter. Then I learned how critical birds are to both plant and insect species. As both pollinators and seed distributors, they play an essential role in shaping ecosystems. The presence, or lack, of birds impacted both Annette and her sister's research. Annette kept a journal in which she listed the birds that visited her and her sister's experimental garden in Cincinnati, carefully noting the dates and times of their arrivals. In Colorado, she would have been wowed by the beautiful mountain bluebirds, which were exceedingly common in that area in 1963, though their populations declined by about 24% between 1966 and 2015, according to the North American Breeding Survey. Since both male and female bluebirds feed their young, we can't know for sure whether Annette saw the brighter males or their less saturated mates, but either would have contrasted dramatically with the wildfire-resistant yellow-brown ponderosa pines. Then there are those Williamson sapsuckers. The boldly black-and-white colored male with white patches looks so different from the black-and-white banded female, it's easy to understand why they were first described as two separate species. Like Annette and Lucy, Elizabeth was much more familiar with the woodpeckers of the eastern forests, like the banded red-bellied woodpecker that bears a passing resemblance to the female Williamson sapsucker. Sharing clear visual details in letters home gave Elizabeth glimpses of the faraway species, even before she could develop the rolls of film Lucy sent back. But back to the rest of the sisters' day of exploration, and a hike that didn't go as planned. Ate lunch under the Ponderosa Pines, then drove about six miles farther to Sprague's Lake, a path which we thought would encircle a lake ended in a marsh, and we had to come back. The path led close to a beaver house, which Elle photographed. Saw a water bird, I think some kind of grebe, and her young ones on the lake. It's important to mention here that the view of the Continental Divide from Sprague Lake in the Rocky Mountain National Park is iconic. From the banks of the 13-acre man-made reservoir, you can see Hallett Peak, Otis Peak, Flaptop Mountain, and Notchtop Mountain. 
Today, the path around the lake is rated among the easiest and most family-friendly in the park. But Annette and Lucy visited one year before that now well-trodden path was completed. The marsh that kept them from completing their trip around the lake was just one of many land management issues keeping park managers and planners busy in the mid-1960s and early 1970s. They were working to accommodate growing crowds of tourists who traveled via cars on the expanding interstate system and at the same time protect the natural resources that drew the seasonal visitors in the first place. On August 1, 1963, though, it turned out to be a good thing that Annette and Lucy had to turn back early. When we got back to the motel, there were black clouds up where we were yesterday, and it looked as if they might spread. We hurried in from dinner just in time. The high mountains disappeared in clouds amid thunder and lightning. Not a bad storm, right through here, though. Rain is very badly needed. Even the alpine flowers were dry in places where it should have been wet. Weather permitting, we are going up on Trail Ridge again tomorrow. Everything should look refreshed. It may be colder than yesterday. We will try to stay two or three days on the west side of the mountains, leaving here on Monday, August 5th, then on to Moab, Utah. You seem to be getting around quite a bit. Glad you are having some rain. Love, Annette. In our next episode, we'll pick up with Lucy and Annette as they experience the Continental Divide up close, just a few days after their soggy spell on Trail Ridge Road. Thank you for listening to Dear Elizabeth, a serial podcast brought to you by the Lloyd Library and Museum in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. This series is part of the Lloyd Research Fellowship and was conceived and produced by Lloyd Fellow Elissa Yancey. Sound design and mixing by Ohio native Ryan McClendon. Our special thanks to Dr. Teresa Cully, who voices Lucy Brown's letters, and Anita Buck, who voices Annette Brown's letters. For more information about the series and the collection that inspired it, please visit the Lloyd at lloydlibrary.org.